I'm Micah Utrecht, Associate Editor at Jacobin. On a recent episode of the podcast Bad With Money with Gabby Dunn, Gabby spoke with Jacobin Managing Editor Nicole Ashoff. Nicole is also the author of The New Profits of Capital, which was published by Verso as part of the Jacobin series, and she talks here about how the free market extends further and further into our personal lives, uh, what financialization is, and why capitalism is losing legitimacy among young people. Thanks to Gabby for letting us publish this audio. You can find her podcast, Bad With Money with Gabby Dunn, that's G-A-B-Y-D-U-N-N, wherever you get your podcasts. Next up, my conversation with Nicole Ashoff. As I mentioned, Nicole is the managing editor of Jacobin Magazine, which looks at political, cultural, and economic issues from a socialist perspective. I know socialism is a loaded term, but don't worry, guys. This isn't the episode where I reveal my secret agenda to convert you all into dreadlocked radicals and trick you into moving to my commune. That's another episode. God, I wish I had a commune. But it is the episode where, with Nicole's help, we ask some very challenging questions about the financial gospel that a lot of us have accepted, without pausing to question it. A lot of this podcast is me asking possibly the dumbest questions I could ask. Uh, So will you explain just capitalism and then also explain why people like it so much? Okay, so capitalism, I think we can just think about it very systematically, right? It's a social system in which, you know, we have these kinds of relationships with each other, but the sort of underlying kind of logic of of the system is that, you know, corporations have to make a profit in order to survive, and ordinary average people have to sort of to sell their ability to work, right? They have to work for a wage in order to survive. And it's sort of, we can think about it as a voluntary system, right? We're not sort of coerced into working, except maybe the very poorest people. And we don't sort of organize our lives around, all right, I want to make the absolute most amount of money, and I'm going to choose my life path, you know, in order to do that. Some people do. Some people do, Most people don't, right? Some people do, but most people don't. And this is because there are other values in society besides just this, you know, desire to make a profit, But the weird thing is that the profit motive is the sort of preeminent overriding kind of organizing force that impacts all the other spheres of our life. So it's just a system that kind of feeds into itself, like it's a snake eating its own tail? Kind of, yeah, definitely. And we can think about it, you know, as sort of spreading over time, right? So sort of bringing things into the marketplace. So it used to be that spheres like education and the family and our personal interactions with each other were all sort of squarely outside the market, right? We didn't think about those as spaces where capital might be trying to, like, make a profit. We just thought about, here's a big industrial company, let's say Ford, and they're making these cars, and people work there, and then we buy them, right? And that's sort of industrial capitalism, and that's how we think about it. I think if we think about a company like Facebook right now, we can really get a sense of the ways in which capitalism has changed and it gets just sort of weirder and weirder. Because it's something that's like such a part of our social interactions and it's a company? Yeah. So, I mean, purportedly, right, it's free and it sells itself as a sort of space for us to talk to our friends and family and share news and ideas and, you know, you know, jokes and all of this. And it's and it sort of presents itself as just an extension of our social sort of spheres that already exist. And in many ways it is, right? 
But the weird, you know, the weird element of it is, is that Facebook makes its money through advertising and it exists as a corporation to make its money through selling access to us, to advertisers. And so you might say, well, okay, well, who cares? Like, whatever. But that gets weird, right? For example, Facebook has this policy where you have to use your real name, quote unquote, real name, right? And if you don't, you don't get to be on Facebook. Well, this is a problem for a lot of people, right? So LGBTQ people, a lot of them don't want to use their real name on Facebook for a variety of reasons, including personal safety and, you know, they're exploring their identity. And, you know, Facebook's not okay with that because the underlying sort of, uh, you know, motive for the entire platform that they've set up is to make a profit. So it gets it gets very weird. And, and you see these weird collisions between, you know, sort of the social aspects of our lives and this kind of desire and demand for making a profit. So many things have become corporations that it's almost impossible to to avoid that sort of thing or like you're just like in this system and there's not and you don't ever really think of a way to exist outside of it. Yeah. You know, if you think about it in a structural sense, I don't think even that sort of like CEOs and capitalists are bad people. I think they operate in a system that is designed in a certain way. Now, this isn't to say that we shouldn't try to change it. It's to say that when we call people greedy or bad, that kind of makes it seem like they can just be less greedy or bad and the system will be better. And that's not true. Right. We were talking a lot about banks um, with another woman that I interviewed. And uh, she was saying that banks used to be kind of mom and pop businesses and that it was like part of your town and everyone knew each other. And now the bank wants to make profit and doesn't really care about your... Yeah. And I think, I mean, and that's definitely sort of a historical shift, uh, which we, you know, which we often sort of characterize by this big word financialization. And the reason why that is the case is that there used to be a lot of regulations on banks and they were set up to be much closer to kind of like a public utility. Right. Which is basically like we know you need to save your money and we know sometimes you need to borrow some money and it shouldn't be this opportunity for us to rake you over the coals and make a bunch of profit off of you. Right. It should just be a service that we offer. Maybe we'll make a tiny bit of money, uh, but it's really something that's geared toward meeting people's need for credit and this kind of thing. And that's that's dramatically different today. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about financialization and about how it it happened? Sure. I mean, it's a big word and it's kind of a mouthful. So I think there's a few different ways that you can think about it. One is if you situate it kind of in a bigger historical arc. So, for example, the case of the banking industry, right? Like what happened and why did that happen to change it into the kind of, you know, behemoth Wall Street sort of evil, greedy people that we see in the movies today. Capitalism is not just a system that exists by itself, right? It exists within states, and it's and the market and the marketplace is organized by the state, right, the U.S. government. You know, if you look at the, the years following World War II, we had a very stable kind of banking system and global trade and currency, and all this stuff was very stable because it was super regulated, right? Um, in response to the Great Depression and, and World War II and all the kind of suffering that caused. So we set up this super regulated system and, you know, bankers didn't make a lot of money, but sort of everyone was participating. But what you start to see in the 1960s and 70s is sort of an increasing 
crisis amongst capitalists, um, both in the United States and abroad. You have a bunch of companies, uh, you know, competing with each other. Profits are going down. And you also have a lot of sort of political and social unrest, right? We can think about the 1960s, certainly, um, and, and, and kind of link this in. They're all linked together. By the 1970s, you know, you have the oil crises. We're in a big sort of uh, mess, and, and, and the governments aren't really sure what to do. So one of the things that the United States uh, government does is it starts to bend to pressure to sort of deregulate the banking sector. People are starting to say, look, you know, and deregulate the financial sector. They're saying one of the reasons we're in this kind of period of stagnation is we need less regulations and you need to give us more opportunities to, you know, make profits. And we see over time, it's this dramatic kind of shift to what we today think about as the global financial system, right? So we have this kind of global stock market. We have all these new financial products, which are very confusing, but very profitable, like futures and all these new assets that we can buy uh, and swaps, right? We have all these kinds of things. Uh, And we create this kind of, you know, deregulated Uh, to some degree, kind of single world market for money and credit, right? So we have this new sort of super high speed financial system that gets set up um, where banks are really able to do pretty much whatever they want, right? Which gets us into big crises like the 2007, 2008 financial crisis. And so people like it because they are able to make money and then people who are not making money like it because they think they feel that it's aspirational, Well, I don't think your average sort of person is thinking about financialization in the sense that, well, the government made all of these changes uh, and and is it helping me or not? I think they're experiencing it more in the kind of, uh, you know, sort of everyday sense. So one of the weird things that happens, um, and especially starting in the 1990s, as a result of all this sort of deregulation and, and new sort of financial products is that people get access to credit, right, in a way that they never had before. And this is a double-edged sword. So, you know, we have sort of decades of stagnating and declining wages in the midst of rising housing, education, and healthcare costs, right? So how do people deal with this? Well, they take out loans, right? They use credit to buy things. Well, this wasn't always the case. Like, average, ordinary people didn't always have access to this kind of credit. So this is something that's very new. But it also creates a situation of, of like, massive indebtedness. I mean, do you think people now, because of Trump's ties to business and all that, like, are are going to pay attention more to the ways that, like, business is tied into government and government is profiting. I don't know. I can't I can't imagine a situation where somebody likes this system. Yeah. But maybe no. now they're going to hate it more. Um, I think and it, this has been this has been coming since the financial crisis. I think that that was, a, you know, millions of people lost their homes. Uh, millions of people lost their retirement savings that were tied up with the stock market. Millions of people lost their jobs as companies downsized. I think that was a real shock to people. And they weren't happy with the kind of solution, which was just let's pump trillions of dollars into the banking sector and save the banks. But then people rioted to do Occupy Wall Street and then everyone made fun of them. (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny. Everybody did make fun of them. And Occupy, we sort of look back now and say, well, I don't know. They didn't really do anything. But the Occupy movement and also, you know, globally in terms of like the Arab Spring and then, you know, it really actually started 
uh, a kind of new dialogue. And really, I think now if we look back, we can really see it as a kind of shift, particularly amongst younger people who, ex- you know, experience they're in their 20s, they're, they're saddled with debt, you know, when Occupy happens. And all of a sudden they're saying, wait a minute, this system is totally stacked against me. I played by the rules. I studied hard. I went to college. I took out all these loans like you told me to. And now I'm working at Starbucks and I can't pay off my debt and I'm moving back in with my parents. The way you're telling me what's going on, I can't imagine. Why in 2008 didn't everyone riot? Is it because of shame? Is it because they lose their house, they lose their job, whatever it is, and then they think, well, this is a failing on my part, this is my fault? And then when people do riot, they're labeled entitled. Is this just like, this is all feeding into like keeping us at the status quo, and that benefits the people at the top. I'm like literally sitting here like putting together, you know, on Homeland where they like put strings to (laughs) pictures. (laughs) Like I'm freaking out right now. All right. Well, don't freak out. But you're totally right. So part of it is the way and this is, you know, if we use big if we want to freak you out even more, we can use big, scary words like ideology. Right. Like what is the ideology that underpins capitalism? Well, one of the things that it does is it tries to make people's personal struggles totally personal, right? So I have to declare bankruptcy because I can't pay my medical bills and, and I'm, I'm ashamed lose my house and I'm ashamed because I somehow didn't make all the perfect individual choices to prevent that from happening. Well, if it was just one person, right? And this is the sort of what C. Wright Mills, the famous sociologist always says, if it was just one or two people, then yeah, we might look to those one or two people and say, well, maybe you didn't really make the right choices. But when this is happening to millions upon millions upon people, we have to start looking at the actual system itself, the structures that are actually causing people to get into this difficulty. And then when younger people actually talk about these kinds of things, then like the older my like parents generation will be like, ugh, these entitled millennials. But like actually they got fucked also. Well, they did, but also they had, I mean, a lot of people in the baby boomer generation, a lot of the reasons why they don't understand this because they lived in a really different economy. Many people could have one person working and support the household. They had uh, much sort of steadier long-term jobs. They could count on steady increases in their wages over time. And, you know, they were able to sort of buy a house. Education was a lot more affordable. You know, all of these things are radically different now. Where does the uh, U.S.'s obsession with avoiding debt come from? Well, I, don't, I mean, this is interesting, right? Um, because I don't think there's there's overall an obsession with avoiding debt. I think there's just a totally contradictory messages about debt. So if you're, you know, an ordinary person, right, There's there, you're getting two simultaneously conflicting messages. One says take on debt right now. Uh, take it on to pay for your college education. The more expensive, the better. Go to NYU take on debt to buy a house or you're just making poor financial decisions as a renter, right? There's all this pressure to take on debt and it's you're sort of legitimately taking it on in the sense that if you take it on, it looks like you're making a sound financial decision for your future. Yet, the minute you can't pay back that debt, right, uh, you sort of lose your moral virtue, you're a loser, right? Uh, Like, why did you take on all that debt if you couldn't afford to pay it back? So there's these completely contradictory messages that people are somehow supposed to perfectly negotiate, you know, in a situation where, you know, there's more competition for jobs than ever, 
Many jobs are low paying. You know, the cost of health care and, and education has, and housing has skyrocketed. So it becomes this very sort of impossible to win situation. But then it's also like you're not working hard enough. Like, do you think that there's like any connection between working hard enough and economic prosperity in our current situation? Uh, no, I mean, not really. If for, maybe for a few people. So look, I mean, if you look at if you look at sort of the distribution of income, right, the wealthy people uh, got their money from their parents. And the poor people, their wages have, if they've ever been linked to working hard, which I'm not really sure they are, they certainly haven't been linked to working hard for the past 40 years. You know, if we look at wages, they haven't been pegged to productivity or inflation for a long time. Because now, it's in the company's best interest to pay you the least amount. Yeah, for sure. Now, there are a few, there are some small segments of the kind of professional class uh, you know, doctors, some lawyers, some people in the tech industry, where you do still see that kind of classic relationship between hard work and getting ahead. And that's the kind of people that are held up, right, as the example. People like Bill and Melinda Gates and, you know, Oprah Winfrey, Sheryl Sandberg, um, John Mackey, who's the CEO of Whole Foods. You know, these kinds of people really kind of frame the way we think about these kind of social problems and, and how to solve those problems. But you can work 80 hours a week at Target and you're never going to get ahead. Right. And then, But then you're shamed. Then people are like, you're not working hard enough. That's why you haven't paid off your college debt. That's why you're doing this. That's why you live at home because you don't work hard enough. Yeah, and it's, that's a total lie. I mean, and it really causes people a lot of agony because they feel like, oh, I'm just not making the, the right choices. And there's such a double standard. So if you think about the messages that individuals receive about debt and compare that to the messages that, like, corporations receive about debt, they're completely different. So corporations, you know, operate on a day-to-day business, say a company like General Motors, by constantly borrowing from the, from the financial markets, the capital markets, and that's how they work every single day. And if they take on too much debt, all they have to do is declare bankruptcy, right, which is now a totally acceptable form of restructuring. And it's considered considered totally smart business for them to, you know, not pay their workers the pensions that workers had paid into for 30 years, not pay them the health care that they had, you know, been promised by their uh, employer and, you know, pay off the banks, of course. But you see, there's this total double standard when it comes to debt. At the end of one of your pieces, uh, you write, if we're going to get through this crisis, we need to tell different stories, stories that don't glorify docility and subservience, stories that don't confuse personal troubles with public issues. And this is kind of what what we've been talking about this whole interview. Um, What are the kinds of stories that we should be telling? I wrote that piece because I don't know if you remember this, but a couple years ago, Chrysler had these series of ads called uh, um, they're imported from Detroit sort of. Uh, series of commercials. Uh, and they were super popular. The first one played at the Super Bowl at M&M in it, and it was talking about sort of how, you know, Detroit sort of got through its crisis, and it's going to be great again. I got a question for you. What does this city know about luxury? Huh? What does a town that's been to hell and back know about the finer things in life? Well, I'll tell you, more than most. You see, it's the hottest fires that make the hardest steel. Add hard work and conviction, 
and the know-how that runs generations deep in every last one of us. That's who we are. That's our story. And they had a series of other ads, too, which were basically talking about, you know, this is right after the financial crisis, and they're talking about how America, you know, we've seen crisis before, and we're going to get through it. And the way that they kept, you know, these series of ads, the way they kept telling people to get through it all was just to, like, keep your head down, don't complain, dig in, work harder at your job, and, and you know, this is how we're going to get through it. And, and I talk about these as stories because they really are, in the sense, right, if we create little, you know, vignettes and tiny stories of, uh, you know, the hockey player just working hard and the young couple not asking their parents for money and working harder, it's like these kinds of stories are really toxic because, again, they're constantly pointing the blame back at the individual and and telling the individual, don't complain about the fact that you're working six jobs and you can't pay your rent. You know, exactly. And then nobody riots and nobody changes anything and nobody marches and nobody. Exactly. So part of it is putting different ideas out there and legitimating different stories, right? Telling different stories. And if we look at the history of the United States, there are so many you know, stories of people not just saying yes to the status quo, right? There are so many stories of people just standing up and saying, no, this is this is BS. Like, this is not our fault. And we want something better. We want something different. You know, we can think about the bread and roses strike in Lawrence, Massachusetts, right? We can think if we want to think about the 80s, right? We can look at ACT UP. In 2012, the Chicago Teachers Union just, you know, went out on strike for the first time in like 30 years or more saying this is this is enough. We're not going to take it anymore. I mean, these are the kinds of stories that we should be telling to remind people that they're not alone. Right. One of the things that uh, the kind of moral frameworks that are dominant today is they try to keep everybody sort of isolated and their struggles individualized when they're not. We're experiencing the same kind of troubles and struggles in our life. Thanks again to Gabby Dunn for letting us use her interview with Jacobin Managing Editor Nicole Ashoff. Again, her podcast is Bad With Money with Gabby Dunn. Thanks also to Tanner Howard who produced this segment. And please be sure to subscribe to Jacobin Radio on iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. 